we no longer, since they changed like the evaluation and management codes, we no longer have to address the whole review of systems or the whole physical exam. So I definitely recommend nurse practitioners to do, you know, a problem focused. So really just asking, you know, that review of systems or doing that physical exam that are related to the chief complaint or, you know, the reason why you're seeing that patient. How can nurse practitioners make their charting and patient care more efficient, thus decreasing the risk of burnout and increasing the potential for feeling fulfilled and satisfied at work? Let's talk all about helping NPs improve their job satisfaction with family nurse practitioner Erica Dorn right here on episode 451 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is about you and your personal professional development, your career, and the healthcare system writ large. And I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, entrepreneurship, medicine, and beyond. I love having you along for this ride. And I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. If you'd like to help other people find the show, these are my ubiquitous requests. The first is to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Google, Amazon, or Spotify, or just share the show with anyone who you think might enjoy it or get something out of it. You can share from any podcast app where you happen to be listening, or just share the link right from my website at nursekeith.com. If you want to become a patron, you can go to patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash nursekeith. You can be a patron for as little as $2 a month to help us out, keep the Nurse Keith show going. Or for a little bit more, I will send you some prizes and things in the mail, including several of my books, if you would like to do $10 a month. So check out Patreon if you would like to support the show. The show notes are at nursekeith.com under the podcast drop-down menu. And everything I mention here in terms of the show notes will also be in any app where you happen to be listening, like podcast, overcast, um, Castro, anywhere where you're listening, you will find the show notes. So like I said, we're here with Erica Dorn. She is a family nurse practitioner in Nebraska, and she has created the Burned Out Nurse Practitioner to help overwhelmed NPs. And Erica, it's really good to have you here. And my first question is, what are the commonalities among nurse practitioners that you hear that are their their greatest obstacles to feeling like they've got a handle on it and things are going well and they feel good about what they're doing? Yeah, well, first off, thank you for having me on the show. You've been podcasting a very long time, and I just want to thank you for what you do and helping all of the healthcare providers that you have. Oh, you're so, so kind. Thank you. <laughs> as far as, you know, nurse practitioners and nurse practitioner burnout, um, there are a few, you know, kind of risk factors or things that might cause that burnout. And I'll give you a little bit of a backstory. So I myself was burned out. I was just, you know, mentally, physically, emotionally exhausted. I started to feel detached from my work and from, you know, caring for my patients and even from my family. And so 
eventually I overcame that burnout. And then I realized just how many nurse practitioners were also burned out. And once I started working with them, talking with them, I realized that work-life imbalance was the number one cause of nurse practitioner burnout. And more specifically, the excessive charting that we do as nurse practitioners was really that cause for the work-life imbalance and burnout. Hmm. So I've known a number of nurse practitioners, including several good friends. I had one friend who she would work all day really hard with pretty challenging population in a rural area with lots of substance use disorders and, you know, very complex patients. And she would chart two, three, sometimes four hours every night at home. She'd come home, eat dinner, and even sometimes be charting while she ate dinner. And then for quite a few hours until she went to bed. And that was almost every night. And when you mention de detachment, what I hear of detachment is like depersonalization, like you're just like withdrawing. And, you know, we could call, we could also call some of that compassion fatigue or just, you're just like, you're burnt out, you're crispy. And it, mm -hmm. I think, do you think in these types of circumstances, does the work you do sort of lose its, like its meaning? Is that part of what happens? Yeah, absolutely. It's just, you know, as healthcare providers, we're stressed, like we have just busy, overwhelming jobs. But once you reach that part of, yeah, like detachment, you know, you might feel numb, you just might not care anymore about the work that you do. Um, that's really that point of burnout. Hmm. Okay. So let's talk about charting. <laughs> so everybody I'm assuming is using EMRs, right? Pretty much. Have you ever come Pretty across much. anyone who's paper charting? A couple, but not very really? many. A couple? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. Quick question. Since we're going down this particular rabbit hole, the people who've gotten in touch with you who do paper charting, are their issues the same as the people who are using EMRs? I'm just, I'm really, really curious. Um, I mean, I would say it's, the paper charting is probably a little bit easier um, just because there's not so many, you know, buttons to click. You're not like double charting like you often do. Um, so you don't have, you know, some of the templates or things that you can build on an EMR. But I mean, the paper charting is a little more straightforward. Okay. But I'm sure it can still feel overwhelming because you have to write it all down and you're doing it by hand, yes. which is yeah. old school, but you yeah. know, could be kind of refreshing for some people probably, you know, you do yep. a soap note or whatever, you know, yep. people are probably having nightmares and, and like yelling at their, their phones right now being like, no, <laughs> don't mention soap notes, please don't bring it up. I'm having, yeah. I'm having yeah. waking nightmares. Yeah. Um, so what is it about the EMR? I mean, you mentioned there's lots of buttons to push and there's, you know, of course there's templates and all these things you can do, mm -hmm. but what is it about the EMRs that pushes NPs over the edge? Is it simply that there's so many things to, to do, or is there something about the way EMRs are 
design that makes it harder for them? Yeah, I mean, there's multiple things. Um, you know, I think we tend to kind of overchart, which we can, you know, discuss that a little bit more. But um, just as you know, you're typing, you tend to add more information. And then, yeah, clicking to different screens, um, you know, for my charting system, in order to find a past, you know, medical record, like an echo result or something like that, I have to scroll through and, you know, look through and try to find that information. Um, and same thing, you know, if you're trying to look at a past prescription that, you know, had fallen off your med rec, you have to kind of scroll through and, and just look for a lot of those things. So it takes more time to do that. Mm-hmm. I see. Now, speaking of time, in the previous episode, episode 450, I was interviewing Kissinger Goldman. He's a patient experience consultant and expert and an ER doc. And we were talking about the whole paradigm of, you know, you go into exam room and you have a laptop, let's say, Generally, it's a laptop or a tablet, right? And we talked about how you want to connect with your patient, you want to touch them, you want to do an exam, and you don't want to be staring in a computer so that the patient feels like you're not looking at them. Mm-hmm. But you also, at the same time, you don't want to have to try to remember everything and chart everything after the fact. So, is that a huge thing in terms of, you know, whether you bring the laptop with you and how much you do with the laptop while you're sitting there? Yeah. So personally, what I do, and I also, you know, recommend other nurse practitioners to do, but to take that laptop in there with you, um, you know, it's helpful if you need to look at a past lab result or, you know, a past chart note that can, you know, help save you some time and just so you have all the information there. Um, I do chart in the exam room and I have to, you know, jog my memory and, you know, remember what the patient said. And then I kind of use it, um, you know, as just a way to show the patient I am listening. So, you know, I'll still make eye contact. Um, I will, you know, have the history of present illness. So, you know, the signs and symptoms, the things that the patient has tried, you know, what they're telling me about um, their chief complaint or, you know, the reason why they came in. And then sometimes I'll, you know, read that back to them or I'll say, okay, so this is what I have. Is this correct? So that's a way to, you know, kind of involve the patient. They know that you're listening, you know, they might correct you. And so then you can change that in the chart. No. So that's just one way to do it. Um, The other example that I give. So if you go out to eat at a restaurant, you know, your waiter or waitress, if you told them your order and they didn't write it down, you would be like, okay, are they going to get that right? You know, you're kind of questioning, are they going to remember that properly? So that's another example that I use. Um, I do recommend, you know, it's okay to chart in the room, but just work on, you know, looking at the patient, making that eye contact, you know, kind of multitasking and listening to them as well. Good examples. One thing I'll say is that when I was in my 20s, I waited tables a lot in um, Philadelphia um, as a young man and a young art student. And I worked in this one pretty fancy restaurants, pretty expensive. And we were not allowed to write down anything when we went to the tables. We had to memorize orders. And it was part of like, 
trying, it was part of this paradigm of like impressing the customers. And it's mm-hmm. like, I don't even have to write it down. And these were like complex menus oh, too. Yeah. So anyway, just, just <laughs> saying, just an aside, um, that was another lifetime. But anyway, when you're in there with the patient, there's so much to do. There's so much to think about. And one thing Dr. Goldman said, what he teaches his students and the medical residents who he teaches is that if you're going to write while you're with the patient, you tell the patient what you're doing. You're like, I'm writing this down because I want to remember everything. So I'm Mm -hmm. just making sure that your chart is accurate. Is that okay mm-hmm. with you or something like that? So do you do that as well? Like that's part of involving the patient, like saying, you know, I'm doing this for your benefit in a sense, right? Yeah, yeah, I do. And and then, like I said, I kind of, you know, will reread it to them and then um, they can give me, you know, yeah, that's right. Or no, actually, it's more of this. So I do try to involve the patient that way. That's really great. Um, what about while we're just talking about note-taking. What about virtual visits? Do you do any? Do you do a lot of telehealth? I I don't know. I mean, we did, you know, during COVID, um, Mm -hmm. but primarily I just see patients in the clinic. Yeah. Do some of the nurse practitioners who come to you have issues around telehealth and the challenges of charting, et cetera, when it comes to virtual visits? Are those things that have come up a lot, especially since the pandemic? Yeah, it has definitely come up. And, you know, a a few of the patients or the nurse practitioners that I have talked to have been doing telehealth for a while. So they kind of felt, you know, more comfortable. Um, They did say that, you know, there is just that barrier because you're not, you know, right there with the patient. It's sometimes some technical difficulties. Sometimes, you know, there's, it's just not the same, you know, being on video versus being in person. So that has been a big thing. Um, I will just a pointer for those doing telehealth. Um, those nurse practitioners I have talked to really try to focus on finishing that chart note, signing it off before they move on to the next patient. And they'll say, you know, they can see the next patient is ready to go for their telehealth visit, but it really helps them, you know, get that chart done. Um, cause for telehealth, you might be seeing a, a large volume of patients. And so that's one way to kind of keep up. That's good advice. And since you mentioned moving on to the next patient, this kind of is a perfect segue to my next question and the thing I want to talk about. So I talk to a lot of nurse practitioners myself, and I don't advise them on charting and, you know, things like that, like you do. It's more just basic, like career, like, what am I doing? (laughs) Things like that. Mm -hmm. But what a lot of people come to me to talk about what's really irking them is that most of them were nurses first. For some go like direct entry into masters, but most were at, were nurses. And so in the nursing paradigm, we're ta- taught a certain relatively holistic approach to patient interaction and patient care and communication and how we just how we comport ourselves with patients, right? And some schools have more of that than others. It depends on your school's kind of the zeitgeist of the school and how they approach it. 
And then they become NPs because they're like, oh, I want to become a prescribing provider and I want to do more for my patients and et cetera, right? I want to contribute in that way. But a lot of them come to me and they're like, I don't feel like I ever signed up for the 15 minute visit paradigm. And I feel like I'm being asked to work as like a mini doctor and it rubs up against my training as a nurse, like my training does not fit with this worldview that I can serve a patient well in 15 minutes. So how does that figure into the stories and the challenges that nurse practitioners come to to talk about? That is a major, major issue that I see with nurse practitioners. And like you said, you know, we're not used to that. You know, we were taught the motivational interviewing and, you know, talking to the patient and, you know, really making a difference and interacting with them. And that is one of our strengths, you know, as nurses and nurse practitioners. But it is challenging when, you know, you're scheduled 15 minutes for each appointment, sometimes double booked for those appointments. Um, I mean, it's it's very difficult to get through, especially a complex patient with multiple, you know, chronic diseases. And you want to, you know, make a difference for that patient. You know, as nurses, we were taught to talk about the non-pharmacological interventions and the lifestyle changes and that's just very difficult to do in those 15-minute appointments. Right. Because, I mean, patients want to talk. They might have stories. And like Dr. Goldman was saying in the previous episode, you want to listen to those stories because it can often give you a lot of hints about the person's psychosocial situation. You know, you could mm-hmm. learn a lot of things, but you need to have the time to be able to allow them to talk so that you can sit and listen. And you also have to accomplish so much because a patient might come with maybe an acute complaint, but they're probably going to start to throw in other things too. And how do you deflect, you know, they're like, they came in for, you know, shoulder pain and upper back pain, but then they're like, oh, like I've been having these stomach aches and, you know, and, you know, I had diarrhea the other day and, and. You don't want to dismiss them. So you don't want to shut them down. So I can see how hard that is. So how do you approach your work? And also, how do you approach talking with NPs who come to you? How do you handle that 15-minute slot? What what are some strategies for like, how do you make it work? Because for me, it sounds kind of like untenable personally. Yeah. And I mean, really, there's a few different things. So initially, you know, when you walk into that patient room, just setting the agenda and saying, hey, I have the next 15 minutes to spend with you. What is most important to you? Because, you know, I could talk about diabetes and hypertension and hyperlipidemia, but if there's something, you know, that the patient really needs that they really want to ask me or, you know, they're really struggling with, I want to make sure that I address that first. Um, The second tip that I have is to set boundaries with patients. So, you know, if, if they come in for one or two things and then, like you said, start listing off multiple other complaints or things that are going on, I'll just say, 
hey, you know, we have a limited time today. I want to make sure that I address these complaints or these issues um, thoroughly. And, you know, if you kind of show it, give that option to the patient, like, yeah, I don't want to just, you know, blow this off. I want to talk about this, you know, please schedule like a follow-up visit. Okay. Um, and then the, the other tip that I have, um, as far as, you know, going through like that review of systems that we have to do, um, we no longer, since they changed like the evaluation and management codes, we no longer have to address the whole review of systems or the whole physical exam. So I definitely recommend nurse practitioners to do, you know, a problem focused. Um, so really just asking, you know, that review of systems or doing that physical exam that are related to the chief complaint or, you know, the reason why you're seeing that patient. I see. Okay. So. When you're doing an acute visit, like it's a, it's a, what are they, some places call it like a focused visit. There's all these different terms mm -hmm. for like, they give you 15 minutes or 20 or 30 or whatever. When you're doing a physical, like say you're doing an annual physical exam, what's the normal amount of time that's allowed for that in the majority of practices? I know you can't, you can't make blanket mm -hmm. statements, but what do you generally hear about time for a, a full like physical? Um, unfortunately, some of them are 15 minutes. No way. Yeah. An annual PE, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> 15 minutes. Yeah. How, how is that even possible? It's, it's very challenging. It really is. Yeah. And I mean, some places it will be, you know, that 30 minutes. 30. And so you do have a little more time. Yeah. But and 30 sounds relatively reasonable. Mm -hmm. But so you're, you're serious that some places mm -hmm. allow 15 minutes for an annual exam. Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> see, see what that brings up for me too, is this whole, this whole paradigm. I mean, first of all, I mean, here where I live in Santa Fe, and then I hear about even in big cities, it can take you, you know, you can call your doctor's office to want to be seen for something and they can't see you for six weeks or more, mm -hmm. right? Or you want to get in with a specialist and the specialist can't see you for three months and you're in pain or whatever it is you happen to have going on. So I just feel like in terms of, the patient experience, it's like if you have issues you want to discuss with your provider, you can't even get a regular visit for, let's say, three months. And then when you go for your annual exam and everything feels rushed, everything feels like it's moving so fast. I mean, that's frustrating for the, for the patient. But what do you hear from the nurse practitioners you talk to in terms of how like, how does that hit them in their, like in their nurse's heart? Like, what does that do to them in terms of like, I don't know, would you call it moral injury? Like mm -hmm. what's going on with them in their heart? Like, how are they affected on that, that deeper level? Yeah, they feel like, you know, they're not doing their job. Like they're not able to, you know, really help that patient. And I think that you know, the reason why a lot of nurses and nurse practitioners got into healthcare was because they wanted to, you know, make a difference and impact that patient's life. And so, you know, when you're not able to do that and you're just constantly, you know, working and just seeing those patients in 15 minutes and you know, you're not 
you know, doing your best or doing the kind of work that you want to do. I mean, that can be tough. Like you said, the moral injury, you know, it can cause that burnout. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a serious issue. Mm -hmm. And when you have that level of feeling like you can't be the nurse that you dreamed of being, or you're no longer able to do what you used to do as an RN, because now you're an NP, you have so much more responsibility and you're like, I was here to help people, you know? Mm -hmm. So I've spoken with some NPs and I've met several who actually made the decision to give up their APRN license after spending like upwards of, I don't know, $80,000 to become an APRN. And they mm -hmm. go back to the bedside as RNs. Is that something you're hearing and seeing? Or is that sort of, is that rare? No, that is actually very common. Um, I will say the other part of that is usually, you know, pay. A lot of RNs, bedside RNs are making, you know, about the same, if not more than a nurse practitioner. Um, and then if you add up, you know, the hours nurse practitioners spend charting in evenings or on weekends and, mm -hmm. you know, working in the clinic five days a week, they really miss that flexibility of, you know, the three 12 hour shifts. And I mean, it's the work of an RN is very challenging. I mean, it's a lot of different things, you know, all at once. It is more, you know, physical. Um, you really have to be, you know, focused and and taking care of those patients. Um, but on the flip side, you know, a lot of nurse practitioners kind of miss that and maybe miss doing, you know, more of the procedures or, you know, just having that better flexibility of their time, less responsibility, um, and then the pay as well. So I have seen a lot of nurse practitioners go back to working as an RN. It's shocking to me and sad. And, you know, people go to NP school for various reasons, but obviously they want to still do good work in the world and they feel like they can have a particular type of impact as a prescribing provider, right? Um, gosh, there's a lot of issues as a career coach that I see when you go back to RN because if your potential employer sees you used to be an NP, they're like, huh, you know, it raises a lot of red flags. Mm -hmm. It's like, why aren't you working as an NP? And, or you're overqualified now or, um, and then there's also just that sense of like, oh my gosh, I spent, I spent all these thousands and thousands of dollars and blood, sweat, and tears to become an NP and look, you know, it's, it's very sad to me. But mm -hmm. when we come back from the break, there's some things I want to talk about. I absolutely want to talk about your, some specific charting and time management tips that you have in terms of like focused charting and other kinds of um, advice that you give to NPs that you've kind of gleaned from your own work. And now you know kind of how to train people and educate them to do that. I'd also like to touch a little bit on acute NPs versus outpatient NPs and the different experiences that people are having, because I think that's very interesting. And some other issues that I think are are really worth discussing. So hang in there with us and we'll be back for the second half of episode 451 with Erica Dorn, family nurse practitioner. Mm -hmm. 
And welcome back to the second half of the episode. We're here again with friend of the pod and my new friend and colleague, Erica Dorn. She is a family nurse practitioner and charting coach. She helps nurse practitioners learn how to approach their charting and documentation and the patient care and prevent burnout and help them feel more steady and confident in the work they're doing and get their work done in a timely manner. And Erica, we just talked about all different types of issues in the first half of the show. And let's dive into something I mentioned right before the break, which is acute care versus outpatient. So personally, what I'm perceiving is that there's more and more roles for nurse practitioners in the acute care setting. And we even have you know, acute care nurse practitioner master's degree programs where there's a specific track, like for acute care adult Jerry, et cetera, et cetera, right? What are you hearing and what are you perceiving in terms of the differences between the charting challenges faced by outpatient NPs versus acute care NPs? Yeah, so it kind of depends, you know, each practice is different. Um, They have their own, you know, differences. Um, As far as, you know, outpatient, I'm thinking, you know, primary care, you know, the specialty clinics, um, there's a lot to do. So, you know, we see patients, we document on that. There's also analyzing diagnostic data, you know, notifying patients about their labs or radiology results. There's um, reviewing, you know, medical documentation. So if they were hospitalized or, you know, saw that specialist, you have to review that, update the chart, you know, acknowledge it. And then there's, you know, patient messages, which is a significant um, reason that, and takes up a lot of time for nurse practitioners to address those patient messages Um, versus, you know, on the acute care side, um, they do have their own kind of challenges. Um, You know, these are very complex patients. They have to, you know, look at the full picture, you know, review a lot of, you know, labs, make sure medications, everything are, are accurate. And so there's definitely, you know, some differences. Um, But I will say, I've worked with all kinds of nurse practitioners and they all, you know, tend to challenge, have those challenges as far as charting. So even the acute care where, well, it might not be a 15 minute visit, but if you're rounding on, I don't know how many patients you might be rounding on, it might end up being 10 to 15 minutes with a patient or less, right? When you go into Mm -hmm. an acute care, like at the bedside type of scenario, is that Mm -hmm. true? Yeah. And I mean, a a lot of nurse practitioners that work, you know, in a hospital setting, sometimes they're rounding on hospital patients in the morning and then have to come back, you know, for a full clinic um, schedule Mm. in the afternoon. And so that really, you know, shortens your time. You have to get through those patients quickly and then go back to the clinic. Um, And then, I mean, as far as like a hospitalist role, nurse practitioner, they see a large amount of patients. A lot of times they're the ones doing, you know, that admission history 
and physical. And so those are just, those are more, you know, comprehensive, complex chart notes. Um, it does help for, you know, hospitalists, nurse practitioners to make sure that first, you know, initial history and physical admission note is very thorough because then, you know, as you go see that patient the next day, your progress note, you know, can be a lot more problem focused. Like you already have a lot of that information in there and it can just be more of a update, you know, a summary, that kind of thing. I see. Yeah. And I, I'm thinking about the differences that I, I can perceive, you know, when you're an FNP working in primary care or you're an adult Jerry working in a specialty clinic, for instance, you know, you mentioned patient messages, like you've got to like check your voicemail or maybe they send emails, maybe no one's screening those for you and you have to screen them all yourself. And then I think on the acute care side, you may not be getting patient messages, quote unquote, but you're getting, you might carry a beeper or it's a cell phone that where you're getting texts, like encrypted texts and mm -hmm. you have to respond. And then this patient goes south and you have to, you know, take a call from a nurse because, you know, something's going on. You need to change something because their blood pressure is dropping. So and then somebody stops you in the hallway and they're like, hey, can we talk about patient in 107? And you're like, oh, okay, mm -hmm. got to get to clinic in seven minutes, right? So I guess whichever way you're looking at it, whether it's acute care as a hospitalist or whatever, or you're in a, you know, fairly qualified health center in FQHC, it's the same thing. It's just, it's a different it's just a different world, but you're going to have interruptions and there's all this other extraneous stuff that you have to do. That's actually not extraneous. It's pretty important. Um, I want to ask, how long did you work as a, as an RN before you decided to go to nurse practitioner school and get your master's? It was about seven years. Um, I did like some med surge, neurotrauma, um, and then working like at a critical access hospital. So um, that's more of, you know, kind of the inpatient ER. I did some cardiac rehab as well. So kind of a variety. Okay. And then when you went to NP school, you did the FNP track mm -hmm. and were you working full-time or part-time while you went to school? How did you manage that? Yep. I worked part-time as an RN. Mm -hmm. And was your FNP program full-time? Like, were you like, um, you know, all systems go for what, two years or three years? Yep. It was full-time for three years. Wow. So, and you were working as well. Mm -hmm. So that must've been a lot because you had your, your clinical rotations for FNP school, and then you're also mm -hmm. working as a nurse and that must've been challenging. And when you were, um, you know, being precepted and you did your clinical rotations and you were, you know, working alongside experienced nurse practitioners, were you seeing them struggle with the things that you now help nurse practitioners overcome? I was, yes. Okay. And I mean, unfortunately, in a lot of, you know, nurse practitioner programs, the charting aspect, we learned very little. So really? I th yeah, I think I had maybe one 45 minute lesson on like charting and, you know, billing and coding, even though those are very important, you know, aspects for our day-to-day -day work. And so um, when I, you know, started out as a nurse practitioner, I struggled and I kind of had to, you know, teach myself a lot of these time management tips, 
teach myself, you know, how to choose the correct evaluation and management code. And so, yeah, that's why I created the nurse practitioner charting school, because there was just kind of that lack of support and education as far as charting. So you're saying seriously that in three years of NP school, you had 45 minutes of lecture on coding and charting. Yeah. Wow. I think they, you know, anticipated that maybe in um, clinical that you would learn more of that. And I mean, I was fortunate enough, you know, to document in my clinical settings. Um, Some of my fellow students, for whatever reason, that clinic would not, you know, give them access. So they did not have as much practice. You know, they couldn't practice within the EU. HR as far as charting. And the other thing that, you know, maybe nurse practitioners learned how to chart in school, but they had to create very comprehensive, detailed notes, you know, those those thorough soap notes. And when you get out into the real world practice, I mean, you don't have time to do that for every single patient. Right. It's like when you were in RN school and you had to write care plans. And, Mm -hmm, you know, once you're out in the real world, it's like, well, the care plan might be generated by the EMR, but, you know, do you really look at the care plan? You know, maybe maybe you do, maybe you don't. So I'm sure the other things that you deal with, especially I'm assuming in the outpatient world, you, you order a medication or a test and it needs a prior authorization from insurance. And, you know, there's all these insurance regulations. So do you find that a lot of NPs have to deal with all that themselves, and but some might have medical assistants who help with that? Yeah, the prior offs, they're Ooh, tough. <laughs> really hard. And yeah, I will say it's it's gotten worse over the years. I mean, insurance is, you know, just really cracking down on those tests and those prior offs, they do take a lot of time. And, you know, ideally, if you had a nurse or an MA, you know, someone to help you with those prior offs, that would take that off your plate and, you know, make it so you didn't have to spend your time doing that. It's been challenging because a lot of places have been short-staffed. I mean, it seems like every industry is short-staffed right now, Mm -hmm. but you know, if you don't have that support staff to do that work for you, it falls on the nurse practitioner's plate. And so that's just one more thing, you know, that takes up your time. It's frustrating for the nurse practitioner. It's very frustrating for the patient too, because, you know, you just want to help them. You want to get the test that you know you need or, you know, prescribe the medication that you know will help them. But unfortunately, you have to jump through those hoops of the insurance. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you need that MRI or CAT scan. You know that Mm -hmm. you need this particular medication that, you know, isn't generic. You know, that's the medication that's going to work. You know that for a fact that that's what you need. And, you know, there's a lot of battles to fight, you know you're fighting with the 15 minute visit, you're fighting with the prior authorizations, you're, you know, there's so many pieces flying at you all the time. And I just, the level of stress is just, I just feel like it's just so over the top. And Mm -hmm. it just makes me feel terrible for, for people who are in those circumstances and feel that they can't be who they feel like they were called to be. And I think that's mm-hmm. that's just really tragic to me. And we could have a long, long, expansive <laughs> conversation about the 
American healthcare system, but we, we're not going to go there right now, even though I'm tempted. Um, so on our first conversation, you you told me on our call that, you know, you're an FNP and then you decide to get a different NP certification. Like maybe you're going to become, you're going to get a postmaster's certificate in psychiatric, you know, it became a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. But you mentioned to me that it's sort of like, to me, on some levels, that could fix some things if you move to a different type of practice model or different specialty. However, it's sort of like when you live in Oklahoma City and you decide to move to San Diego and you're looking for a geographic cure. And yeah, it's really nice being by the beach and everything, but a lot of the fundamental issues that were dogging you actually maybe didn't have to do with living in Oklahoma City. And they actually jump in your baggage with you. And when you unpack your your bags at your new home in San Diego, they're actually there. So is that an apt metaphor for what happens when someone's like, okay, so I'm going to get this other certificate and things are going to be different? Yeah, I've seen that a lot. And, you know, even going from an RN, you know, thinking they want to not be working 12 hour shifts and they, you know, want to work less and not be, you know, in that hospital setting. So they go, you know, get their nurse practitioner degree and they think it's, they're going to be making more money. They just think it's going to be better. And, you know, unfortunately there's negatives to, you know, both sides of those careers. And the other example, you know, if you are burned out, if you're in a toxic work environment, um, you know, maybe you're struggling with that work-life imbalance, you know, if you leave that job and go find another job, I mean, sometimes, you know, there are good working facilities out there, you know, that have that supportive environment. Um, but sometimes you end up, you know, also burning out or, you know, facing a lot of the same challenges that we've discussed. And so I just encourage nurse practitioners to, you know, spend some time and really dig deep Um figure out what is it that they want out of their own life, you know, what's their overall vision, and then be honest with themselves, you know, what are some things that, you know, maybe you're not setting boundaries with your patients or, you know, coworkers, maybe you're not doing the self-care that we know we should be doing, um, you know, maybe there are some things you need to improve with your charting so that you're not having to chart in the evening, you know, matter what job that you have. So, Definitely, you know, being honest with yourself and kind of discovering what are some of those things that you need to work on, you know, personally in order to be, you know, happier and and have a, a more productive life. Good point. Yeah. When I'm talking to some RNs who are thinking about becoming NPs, for instance, you know, it just sometimes it seems to me that everybody and their mother wants to be an FNP. Like that's the go-to. And Sometimes I'll say things to them like, okay, so FNP, all right, so that's what you're looking at. And I, I ask them like, do you like working with children? Do you like pediatrics? And they say, oh gosh, I hated my pediatric rotation and I, I really don't like working with children. And I say, well, if you're going to become an FNP and you're going to work in primary care, you're probably going to have to see children and you're going to have to learn all the different ins and outs of pediatric um, care and medications, et cetera, et cetera, and developmental 
everything. And, you know, is, do you really want to work with kids? And they, I can see them thinking like, oh, I didn't really think about that. And then when I learn that like PD's like, that is like a no-go zone for them, or they just really don't want to do kids, right? I'm like, well, what about adult Jerry, you know? So it's an aging world. Um, not that that's going to make everything a panacea and everything's going to be perfect, but do you, do you see people struggling with, you know, which track to take along the way? And maybe they, they made a choice that wasn't, they didn't think it through. Yeah. I mean, the FNP, like family nurse practitioner, that is, you know, kind of the more popular choice. Um, it's depends, you know, who you talk to, maybe the more diversatile choice. Um, but it kind of depends. Yeah. What you want to do overall for practice. Um, I will say I work in a rural area and so the FNP is preferred just because we can see, you know, the pediatrics. Um, and so we do, you know, the primary care, but then we also cover the ER. And so if there was like an acute nurse practitioner there, you know, they couldn't see the pediatric patients. And so we'd have to have, you know, someone there as a backup to see um, a pediatric patient. So kind of depends where you are. Um, I just encourage nurse practitioners, you know, to think about what they want to do as far as practice. Um, you know, like you had said, I've seen a lot of FNPs decide later, you know, maybe I want to do psych um, or, you know, some other kind of specialty. And so, I mean, it's always okay to go back. I mean, it, that's great to get, you sure. know, more education, but, you know, just kind of figuring out what you want to do as a nurse practitioner and going with that route. Yeah. And if you live in a state like New Mexico, where you have absolute full practice authority, there is the possibility of hanging a shingle, opening your own office, and you call the shots and you decide how long your visits are and how many patients mm -hmm. you see a day. Now that's mm -hmm. a whole nother part of it where you're a business person and you're like, you are creating the whole thing, which has its own challenges, you know, as an entrepreneur, but you know, that could, can get you out of being under the thumb of an organization telling you how long your visits are, right? Definitely. And I've seen, you know, it becoming more popular as far as like a cash base um, mm -hmm. practice too, where, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, you can see the patients for how long as you want and you can treat them, you know, ethically, but you know how you want and, and really help them. And I think a lot of patients want that, you know, they want to feel heard. They don't like the 15 minute appointments mm -hmm. any less than we do. I mean, they, they want to take care of themselves and to learn and to know how to do that. Yeah. So I know what you do in your coaching in terms of charting. What are just a couple tips? Like if there's a nurse practitioner listening right now and they're like, yeah, I'd love just a couple little tidbits, you know, um, what are a few things you find are like really effective, just little tips that might help someone get a little edge on their charting? 
So first off, I encourage nurse practitioners to focus on one habit change or, you know, one charting tip at a time and just really, you know, build that up, feel confident, and then they can move on to the next one. Um, It really helps, you know, when we put all our eggs in one basket and just focus and that really can help. Um, Also using like smart phrases or dot phrases. So those are, you know... So they're commonly used, you know, words or phrases um, that you're constantly saying over and over again or constantly charting. It could be, you know, your plan of care instructions like diabetic education. Um, It could be, you know, if you ask the same kinds of questions for like a patient who comes in worried about like UTI. I mean, there's certain, you know, questions you ask for that patient in the history of present illness. Um, You know, it could be like a physical exam that you normally do for musculoskeletal or, you know, your neurological exam. Having those smart phrases or dot phrases can really save a lot of time. And most EHRs do have that option. Um, It can take some time, you know, creating those. I I do have a comprehensive list of smart phrases. You'll get access to 125 already made smart phrases that you can easily copy, paste into your charting system, you know, change them towards your preference or specialty. Um, But I have that an option on my website, which can save a ton of time. Oh, that's great. So I know that in some EMRs, you can like pull a previous visit and import it and then you change everything, which has its own risks. I talked Mm. about that on the previous episode where I had a visit with a provider who obviously just imported a note, I think probably from another patient and the the note was not accurate at all and I had Mm. to have them change it. So there are risks involved in doing that, but you can also do what you're saying, which is like just these templates and you have all these smart phrases that you can just import. So that's, that sounds really smart. And do people find these really helpful? Yeah. Yeah. It can save a ton of time. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, I have, you know, a template, which is more of kind of that format or that outline for your note. I have one for um, like an acute adult visit versus, you know, a chronic pediatric visit because there's different exams that we do, you know, kind of different wording. You know, I say the the parent understands instead of the patient. Um, so that can save a lot of time. Those templates also pull over, you know, a lot of their medical history, medications, um, lab results. So that can save a ton of time. And then the smart phrases are, you know, just more of like the one or two sentences that um, like I have one for the procedures that I do. If so, if I'm placing sutures, I have that um, smart phrase already created. I can just go in and edit it, you know, specific to the patient. So not having to try to remember every single time or, you know, type all of that out, those smart or dot phrases can save a ton of time. That's awesome. Now, I just want to ask you as we wind down here, um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics right now at this point, I just checked their job growth projections for NPs, midwives, and nurse anesthetists is hovering around 38% between 2020 one in 2031, something around there, or maybe 2034 now. So an RN, you know, just registered nurse job growth is now down. It used to be in the teens and now it's projected somewhere in the single digits, maybe Mm -hmm. eight or 9% over the next 10 years, which is 
shocking because we have a shortage, but that's another conversation too. How do you feel about the projections? Do you feel like those are realistic? Do you feel like the jobs are there? Do you feel like the the world is getting more crowded as more people kind of pursue the NP? What do you what do you feel like is going to happen in the coming years, five, 10 years? I would say it's very, you know, location specific. You know, some areas are very saturated and it's challenging for nurse practitioners to find a job. That's mm-hmm. another reason, you know, why they might go back, you know, working as an RN. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I do think we need more nurse practitioners. You know, there's definitely going to be a valid role in healthcare. Um, I would like to see, and I think it is a possibility, but more like you mentioned, nurse practitioner owned clinics, um, mm-hmm. just as we get more full practice authority in a lot of states. Again, you know, nurse practitioners strive at giving quality, you know, patient centered care. They want to sit down and talk with the patients and patients want that too. And so I think that, you know, is something where nurse practitioners can kind of fill that role um, for healthcare in the future. Mm. Yeah, I feel like this conversation is important, even for RNs listening, because the potential's there. The job growth is obviously there. It's like, you know, four to five times higher than RN job growth that's projected. So if you're thinking about NP school, you know, there's a lot of different pieces of the puzzle to think about. Practice authority, um, you know, where if you want to live in the Bay Area or in New York, it's going to be a lot harder if you want to live in rural Nebraska or rural New Mexico, it's going to be a different type of job market. So there's a lot of things to think about. And people, I know they can find you at npchartingschool.com. So I want people to reach out to you. But before we say goodbye, I have four quick questions for a little lightning round. Are you game for questions? Okay. So the first question is, how do you define success? I find success by, you know, very specific to that person. Um, You know, for me personally, um, I am a mother and a wife. And so, you know, those are two of my most important roles. And Mm -hmm. so I want to be able to show up, um, you know, and and spend that time with my family um, and just make a difference in the world. That's why I went into healthcare. That's why I started, you know, the nurse practitioner charting school. I like how you brought both home and work into that. It's very, it's very multifaceted. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Second question is, is there a person you could name or describe who's really inspired you in your life? And they could be living or dead. They could also be a really famous person or just somebody in your personal life who's just like somebody you just love and care about who's inspired you. Yeah, actually a few people come to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, it's, you know, the providers that I have worked with that have been doing this, you know, for 30 plus years, and they continue, you know, to show up for their patients, they're very passionate, you know, they want to help their patients and, and make that difference. Mm. So a lot of people who you look up to in the in the field. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's yeah. nice. Okay, so do you have a a book or movie? Um, doesn't have to be an absolute favorite, but a book or a movie that is just like one of your go tos that really has affected 
like the way you live, the way you parent, the way you approach your relationships, the way you approach your work, anything that is just like really central to who you are and why you are the person you are. Yeah. So I've actually listened, you know, or read quite a few um, personal help books. And mm-hmm. um, I think one of them that, you know, kind of helped me the most, um, it was kind of that initial, you know, spark as far as my own personal development and career journey. Um, it's by Jen Sincero. It's, and I'm going to cuss here. So okay. I apologize. You can cut that out, Go but it's it. called you. It's called You Are a Badass, and it's um, just talks really about, you know, knowing yourself as a person, you know, acknowledging the things you have accomplished and, you know, how you can like live your best life that way. I've seen those books around. I think she has several now in the series. Yep. Yeah, yep. I think. Yeah, I mean, anything that empowers people and helps them find their mojo in life, you know, Um whatever works for you. And I've seen those around. I've heard people speak very highly of them. So that's great. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, you know, the timing, like for whatever reason, that point in my life, that book just really, you know, spoke to me. And so, um, I I mean, I am still, you know, reading and listening to audiobooks of of self-help personal development books, because I feel like it's always a journey. You're always learning something more about yourself or, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Many people have mentioned Eckhart Tolle. People have mentioned, um, you know, Brene Brown. There's all yeah. all sorts of people out there yeah. who we turn to. So, yeah. last question: If you were named Queen of the World tomorrow, um, what is the first thing you'd want to do to improve the lives of your subjects? Even though you would have ultimate power and you could do everything and anything, but if you were, you know, your first act as Queen of the World. Um, I think in relation to what we've talked about, just yeah. change the healthcare system. Um, I think mm-hmm. it's very, you know, very little in, you know, preventative care and lifestyle changes and, you know, really addressing like the root cause of that. Um, I mean, we're currently, you know, just putting a band-aid on some of the chronic issues and not really addressing it fully. So that's what mm. I would change first. <laughs> awesome. And you would look great in a tiara. I can see it. <laughs> Thank I you. Just see it. Do you have a, a Do you have a few children? Do you have any daughters? Nope, two boys. Two boys. I was going to say maybe there's a tiara around the house somewhere, but yeah. Well, sometimes boys want to wear tiaras too, but that's yeah. true. All right. Well, maybe your husband will get you a tiara for Christmas. You never know. Well. People can find you at npchartingschool.com and mm-hmm. on Facebook and Instagram, your NP Charting School. Mm-hmm. And can people reach out to you if they want to talk about like what the possibilities are, if they'd like to work with you and, or, you know, consult with you as a coach? Yeah, they can reach out, you know, on social media um, or through my website or email me, Erica at npchartingschool.com. Great. Okay. So I hope there's some people out there who'll take advantage of that. And if you're even thinking about NP school, you might want to have a conversation with Erica. And Erica, Mm -hmm. thank you so much. This has been lovely. And thank you for being here with us and sharing some of these tips and giving, I think, a realistic picture of what the life of an NP is about. And maybe this conversation will help even one person make a really 
thoughtful decision about their future. So thank you so, so much. Thank you for having me. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nurse Keith Show. The show notes will be at nursekeith.com or on the app where you happen to be listening. Please go to npchartingschool.com and check out Erica's website. And also please go to Facebook and like and comment on her Facebook page, NP Charting School, and check out her Instagram and follow her and let her know that you heard you heard her here on the Nurse Keith Show, and that is also Instagram, NP Charting School. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from this episode. If you need personalized holistic career coaching, you can always check out Nurse Keith Coaching. Mention the show and get 10% off your first coaching package. If you're a patron or want to become a patron at Patreon, thank you, thank you, thank you. If you want to leave a rating and review, thank you again. And a deep bow of gratitude to you for listening and sharing the show and just being part of the Nurse Keith Nation. We're members of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. And Rob Johnston is our stalwart and adroit producer and editor. Before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this quote by Brene Brown. Speaking of Brene Brown, because true belonging only happens when we present our authentic, imperfect selves to the world. Our sense of belonging can never be greater than our level of self-acceptance. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico, and my friend and colleague Erica Dorn saying arrivederci from Nebraska. Beautiful Nebraska. Thank you, Erica. Thank you to everyone for listening and being here. And we will catch you on the proverbial flip side. <laughs>